And in addition to welcoming those of you who are in the audience tonight, I'll remind you that there are history enthusiasts all over the world who watch and listen to recordings of these programs online and that our banner lectures are only possible because of the generous support of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Virginia Historical Society members. And if you enjoy these programs and are not a member, please consider supporting them by joining the Historical Society. It's really easy to do at our website, www.vahistorical.org. So of all the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson stood out as the most controversial and confounding. Loved and hated, revered and reviled, during his lifetime he served as a lightning rod for dispute. And even today, he serves as a lightning rod for dispute. Few major figures in American history provoked such a polarization of public opinion. While Jefferson's supporters organized festivals in his honor, where they praised him in speeches and song, his detractors portrayed him as a dilettante and demagogue, double-faced and dangerously radical, an atheist hostile to Christianity. Characterizing his beliefs as un-American, they tarred him with the extremism of the French Revolution. Yet his allies cheered his contributions to the American Revolution, unmasking him as the now formerly anonymous author of the worlds that helped to define America in the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson's bifurcated image took shape both as a product of his own creation and in response to factors beyond his control. In the first 50 years of independence, Americans' views of Jefferson revealed much about their conflicting views of the purpose and promise of America. Robert M. S. McDonald is professor of history at the United States Military Academy, where he's taught since 1998. He's a graduate of the University of Virginia, Oxford University, and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he earned his PhD. A specialist on Thomas Jefferson and the early republic, he's published several journal articles and other essays and is the author and editor of several books on Jefferson, including Thomas Jefferson's Military Academy, Founding West Point, Light and Liberty, Thomas Jefferson and the Power of Knowledge, and Confounding Father, Thomas Jefferson's Image in His Own Time, copies of which he'll be happy to sign for you after the lecture. Rob's uh, recently accepted an invitation to serve on the editorial advisory board of our very own Virginia Magazine of History and Biography, and we're happy to have him. He currently lives in Cornwall-on-Hudson, New York, with his wife, Christine, and their children, Jefferson <laughs> and Grace. So please give a warm VH welcome to Robert McDonald. Well, thank you all so much for uh, for coming and uh, being here tonight. Thank you, uh, Andy, for your your wonderful uh, introduction. Although I do have to say uh, he's he's blown my cover somewhat. I would like to stand before you as the uh, objective um, historian without uh, a dog in this fight. Um, but but I will have to admit that I I, I do have a, a warm feeling for Thomas Jefferson, um, as as Andy pointed out. Our, my son is named Jefferson. The story um, thickens. My, uh, my wife and I actually met at Monticello. 
where, where, she, where she was employed as a research associate, um, we, uh, we started working on a project together and started to date. And um, I decided that I wanted to propose marriage on Jefferson's birthday, <laughs> which is April 13th. Uh, the only problem was that uh, the year that we got engaged, uh, 2001, April the 13th fell on a Friday. <laughs> and I'm not a particularly superstitious person, but uh, I, I thought maybe that was not a good gamble to take. So I proposed marriage on Saturday, April the 14th, but the following year on Saturday, April the 13th, 2002, we did get married. And a couple years after that, uh, our son was born. And as you know, we named him Jefferson. Um, and then two years and one week after that, our daughter was born. Um, and we came this close to naming her after Jefferson's best friend, Madison. But we thought, even, even for us, that was a bit much. <laughs> so, so we named our daughter Grace. Well, well, anyway, it, is, it really is great to be at the Virginia Historical Society. And uh, I want to thank you again for being here. I want to apologize that you have had to stare at the cover of this book. And I want to make it very clear to all of you that there is absolutely nothing wrong with your vision. <laughs> it, it, is, it is blurry um, by design. And I have to admit that when I, when I first saw it, I was a little bit taken aback myself. Um, I thought that perhaps there was a printer's error. Um, Perhaps there was a, a glitch in the transmission of the file. Um, but, but then as it became clear to me that this was, in fact, the intention of the person who designed the book cover, um, I began to really appreciate her work. Um, you know, what she's trying to communicate is, is the fact that Americans during Jefferson's lifetime had sort of collective double vision as far as Thomas Jefferson. Some people thought that Thomas Jefferson was fantastic. They thought that with Thomas Jefferson, forget the glass being more than half full, the glass was, was overflowing. Other people, however, thought that the glass was entirely empty. And, and I have to say that in, in researching this book, and I, I worked on this book for a long time, it's almost embarrassing how long I've been working on it, um, if, if you buy a copy, you'll see in the acknowledgments that I mentioned um, that I've been working on the book for a long time. I've been not working on it for even longer. That, <laughs> that sort of explains why it took so long. Um, but during that period of time, I really did learn a lot. And, and it helped me to appreciate um, not only why people thought so highly of Thomas Jefferson during his lifetime, but also why Jefferson had so many detractors, why Jefferson um, was in many respects a controversial figure and a real lightning rod um, for all sorts of, of, of different um, arguments about America and its place in the world. Um, when you think about Thomas Jefferson, um, you could see him in the way that his allies saw him, that his friends saw him, that his admirers saw him. John Beckley of Pennsylvania was one of Jefferson's chief political allies. Um, he described Jefferson um, as the adorer of our God and the friend and benefactor of the whole human race. <laughs> Jefferson, as president, received fan mail from all corners of the United States, including a package from a woman from Kentucky named Elise Wynn, um, containing a jar of pecans, as well as, as well as a note describing Thomas Jefferson as all that's good and godlike. Jefferson was extolled by the likes of people like Daniel Webster and the Marquis de Lafayette. Um, there were children named in Jefferson's honor, 
Um, shortly after his inauguration, in fact, uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, there was a Jeffersonian festival, and one couple held aloft their newborn twins, one of whom was named Thomas Jefferson. The other one, perhaps to his later um, chagrin, was named Aaron Burr. <laughs> but, but then there's, there's the other side of Thomas Jefferson. There are uh, the detractors. There are the people who, for various reasons, saw Thomas Jefferson as someone who not only um, wasn't uh, a good American, but someone who was, in many respects, in their eyes, fundamentally un-American. They saw him less as a chief actor in the American Revolution, but because he spent time as our ambassador to France in the opening days of the French Revolution. They saw him as a French revolutionary. They saw him as an individual who ascribed to all of the excesses of the French Revolution. I mean, to, to his uh, credit, we have to say that Jefferson was there, you know, right as people were coming up with slogans like liberty and fraternity and equality. It was only after um, he left that people came up with slogans like um, chop off their heads. <laughs> but the radicalism of the French Revolution is something that very much struck fear into the hearts of many, Jefferson's, many of Jefferson's opponents. In uh, the 1790s, for example, the, uh, the political discord within the United States reached a fever pitch. The president of Yale, a man named Timothy Dwight, gave a sermon where he predicted that if Thomas Jefferson were ever to become president, the Bible would be cast into a bonfire and our children would be wheedled or terrified into singing heretical hymns. And, Dwight added, all of our wives and daughters will be made the victims of legal prostitution. You have uh, people describing Thomas Jefferson as a coward. You have people describing Thomas Jefferson as an atheist. You have people describing Thomas Jefferson as an anarchist. You have none other than Martha Washington herself in the final years of her life describing Thomas Jefferson as one of the most detestable of mankind. Now, uh, in, in, in researching this book, as I mentioned, I, I, I spent a lot of time learning a lot of things, and I'd love to tell you about all of them. Um, unfortunately, you, you don't have more than 20 years um, to, to spend with me tonight. Um, so I have to, to keep my list somewhat brief, but one of the first things that I discovered about Thomas Jefferson that to me was in some ways the most exciting and the most surprising is the thing that we all think we know about Thomas Jefferson, the thing that you would hope all school children would know about Thomas Jefferson was for a good 20 years unknown about Thomas Jefferson. And I'm referring, of course, to Thomas Jefferson's authorship of the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson, of course, was uh, a 33-year-old delegate from Virginia at the Continental Congress. He uh, had performed capably on several different committees. He had gained uh, a certain degree of renown among elite circles in America as the author of the 1774 Summary View of the Rights of British America. 
He was well thought of by his peers at the Continental Congress. Um, but other than being six feet tall and a man with red hair, there was really nothing about Thomas Jefferson that to, to any of the members of the public in Philadelphia, there was nothing about him that would have stood out. He was a pretty obscure figure. Um, and yet, Jefferson was selected to be among the, the five-member committee that was tasked with drafting the Declaration of Independence. And we know the, uh, the basic story. Jefferson was on this committee um, with the man who was known to all, the man who was perhaps at that point the most famous American, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania. He was on the committee, of course, with one of the strongest proponents of the cause of independence, John Adams of Massachusetts. He served alongside Roger Sherman of Connecticut, as well as Robert Livingston of New York. To, to Jefferson, it seemed pretty clear who should draft the Declaration of Independence. Um, it, it should be John Adams, and Jefferson said as much to John Adams. But according to Thomas Jefferson, Adams's response was emphatic. Adams said, oh no, it should be you. And Jefferson said, why, why me? And Adams said, I'll give you three reasons. Reason number one, you are a Virginian, and a Virginian ought to be at the head of this business. You see, Adams understood that because the war for independence had begun in Massachusetts, because, of course, it was Massachusetts where the British had first deployed troops, because it was Massachusetts where, in response to the Boston Tea Party, the British had, had targeted the colony of Massachusetts with what had come to be known as the Intolerable Acts, because in Massachusetts, it was, that was where the British had sent their soldiers out through Lexington to Concord. It was in Massachusetts that you had the Battle of Bunker Hill. It was in Massachusetts that you saw the blood of Americans spilled. It was in Massachusetts that people from the Bay Colony had rallied to the fight, joined by other New Englanders. If this Continental Congress was going to be truly continental, we needed to bring on board people from other colonies. And it was important to bring on board the delegates from the Southern colonies. And what better way to do that than to make Thomas Jefferson the person who was responsible for the Declaration? So that was reason number one. Reason number two, according to John Adams. He said, I, John Adams, am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular. And you are very much otherwise. Now, Adams perhaps said that because in some ways, maybe he was kind of obnoxious. In some ways, he was suspected because, of course, as a delegate from Massachusetts, his colony, soon to be a state, had much to gain if the other colonies should declare themselves independent states and join with Massachusetts. And, and perhaps he was unpopular because he was suspected. The fact that Adam says things like that, though, I, I hope it makes him popular with us. I, I, I just love the, the self-deprecation and the humility. Um, Adams then said, speaking of humility, reason number three, you can write 10 times better than I can. So Thomas Jefferson picked up his pen and he drafted the declaration. He later would say that he didn't aim for anything original as far as wording or sentiment, that really what he wanted to do was capture um, the American mind, right? And to express the American mind in a tone and tenor fitting for the occasion. When finally the Declaration of Independence was ratified by the Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776, 
When finally it was printed in newspapers, Thomas Jefferson's name was not attached to it. There were only two names attached to the Declaration of Independence originally, um, that of the president, John Hancock, and that of the Secretary of Congress, Charles Thompson. And of course, we know that the signing of the Declaration did not occur until several weeks later, in August of 1776. And then Thomas Jefferson just, you know, attached his name to the document alongside all the other delegates of the Continental Congress. So there was really nothing that alerted the public to the fact that Jefferson made this contribution. And there was really nothing that would cause the public to wonder who had made this contribution. You, you see, in many respects, the old saying is true. The past really is a foreign country. And the 18th century really did have a different political culture. Political writings oftentimes appeared anonymously or with a pseudonym attached. When you think about it, um, Benjamin Franklin, for example, wrote under a number of fictive identities. He was Silence Duguid, he was Poor Richard, he was Richard Saunders. The trio of Hamilton and Madison and Jay authored the Federalist Papers as Publius. Hamilton himself um, would, and that's interesting, right? Hamilton and Madison and Jay authored the Federalist Papers as Publius. They assumed one identity to try to bring coherence and cohesiveness to their project. Um, in the 1790s, when Hamilton was arguing against Thomas Jefferson and the Jeffersonian Republicans, Hamilton would write using multiple different pseudonyms to try to create the sense that there were many people opposing Thomas Jefferson <laughs> and that there was a great degree of consensus among them. So pseudonyms were, were very common. Um, writing things anonymously was very common. In fact, um, one of the things that made possible the Declaration of Independence, one of the things that, that prepared the American mind to accept independence was Tom Paine's common sense. The only thing is, when it appeared in January of 1776, nobody knew that it was Tom Paine's common sense because it appeared without his name on the cover. Uh, in the second edition of Common Sense, Paine addressed the question of who the author of this production is. And he said that his identity was wholly unnecessary to the public. It wasn't necessary for the public to know who wrote Common Sense because the object for attention is the doctrine itself and not the man. Yet it may not be unnecessary to say that he is unconnected with any party and under no sort of influence, public or private, but the influence of reason and principle. The uh, culture of political writing was an outgrowth of the fact that in the 18th century, we were in the midst of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment emphasized that what should cause an argument to have authority is not the identity of its author, but instead, the logic of the argument. Instead, it should be based on the soundness of the argument, the soundness of the evidence in the argument. Who, who wrote the argument was immaterial. Now, we live in a very different world. I, I, I bet that if any of you tried to write a letter to the editor of your local newspaper, for example, and asked that your name be withheld, that that would probably be in violation of your local newspaper's um, letters to the editor policy. Nowadays, people think, oh, you know, if you don't have the courage to stand behind your argument and attach your name to it, then what, what good could the argument be? 
But there was a very different view in the 18th century. So it's not surprising that no one really asked, who is the person who put pen to paper and drafted the Declaration? We know, too, that the fact that Jefferson's name wasn't connected with the Declaration served maybe more than just the, uh, the, the function of conforming with 18th century political culture. Um, it served a very important function as far as guarding Jefferson's personal safety. It was Benjamin Franklin who famously said to all the other delegates of the Continental Congress, as they all went up to sign the document, Franklin supposedly said, we must all hang together, or most assuredly, we will all hang separately. I mean, this was an act of treason. What would Jefferson gain by attaching his name? Indeed, what would the Declaration gain if Thomas Jefferson, this young and fairly obscure man from Virginia, was put forth as the person responsible for the words of the Declaration of Independence? I think really the more interesting question is not why Jefferson's name wasn't attached to the Declaration, why he wasn't famous as the draftsman of the Declaration, but instead, how, how did he become famous as the person responsible for the words of the Declaration of Independence? And, and that's an interesting story. I mean, when I first figured out that Jefferson wasn't widely known as the author of the Declaration, I was looking through newspapers in 1776 and 1777, 1778, looking at Fourth of July celebrations, none of which mentioned him. No one was mentioning him in 1780 or 81 or 82. Finally, in 1783, there was one sermon delivered in Connecticut by the predecessor of Yale President Timothy Dwight, a man named Ezra Stiles. And he wrote in a sermon that was later published that it was Thomas Jefferson of Virginia who poured the soul of the continent into the monumental Declaration of Independence. Well, I thought that that was interesting. And it made me wonder, how was it that Stiles heard that Thomas Jefferson was the person who drafted the Declaration? So I was able to, to go up to Yale and, and go to their, their special collections and archives and thankfully, they have a copy of Ezra Stiles' diary. And several months before giving this sermon, Stiles recorded in his diary that he dined in company with John Langston of New Hampshire. And John Langston had, of course, been a member of the Continental Congress. And Langston told Stiles that it was, and, and these are Stiles' words, Thomas Jeffries of Virginia, who drafted the Declaration of Independency. So this is what happens when you, when, when you hear things uh, transmitted by word of mouth. Clearly, Stiles later clarified um, Jefferson's last name. But, but that's how the word got passed along. And it's interesting. We know that uh, Langston himself is not a firsthand source because he was not a member of the Continental Congress in the summer of 1776. He arrived a couple of months later. So he must have heard from other people who were members of the Congress. Now, Stiles' announcement was a significant one because it was the first one, but it didn't really seem to sink in. You don't see a flurry of mentions of, of Thomas Jefferson's connection to the Declaration in the years following 1783. I found one in 1784 in a Boston newspaper as Jefferson was preparing to embark uh, for France as a diplomat there. 
Um, it mentioned in passing that Jefferson was the person who penned the Declaration of Independence. But then if you look at celebrations of the 4th of July um, in the remainder of the 1780s and even into the 1790s, Thomas Jefferson remains utterly obscure as the author of the Declaration of Independence. And indeed, and maybe ironically, um, what makes Jefferson eventually famous as the person who is connected with the Declaration of Independence is not the Declaration, but instead the Constitution. Because the Constitution, which Jefferson, of course, wasn't present um, uh, you know, to be a part of the, the debating of or the ratification of, he was our ambassador to France by this point. But the Constitution, which made possible the government that went into effect with the inauguration of George Washington as president and John Adams as vice president and Thomas Jefferson, now as America's first secretary of state and Alexander Hamilton as America's first secretary of the treasury, the Constitution was something that almost before the ink was dry on the document, people started to disagree about what it actually meant, how it actually should be interpreted. And very quickly, there were two political factions that emerged. On one side, there was the faction um, that was led by Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton, of course, the Secretary of the Treasury, wanted to interpret the Constitution broadly. He thought that the whole point of the Constitution was to expand the powers of the central government because those of the Articles of Confederation had proven inadequate. Then again, you have people opposing this, this interpretation of the Constitution, this notion that it has broad powers. The leader of that group was James Madison. Madison himself, the father of the Constitution, believed that the Constitution should be strictly interpreted, that when it said that the national government could do something, the national government could do something. But when it didn't say that the national government could do something, that that power should be reserved for the states or for the people, as the language of the Bill of Rights would soon clarify. Hamilton, of course, um, was a political ninja in many respects. And, and, and he was very good at the art of political branding. He quickly claimed for his faction the label of Federalists. Now, in the 1780s, during the period when the Constitution was being debated and ratified by the states, the Federalists were the people who supported ratification of the Constitution. The Federalists in in included not only Hamilton, but also people like James Madison, the father of the Constitution. They included people, too, like Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson supported the ratification of the Constitution. Didn't think it was perfect. He had a few gripes with it. He thought that the president should not be perpetually reelectable. He thought that there should be a Bill of Rights attached. Eventually, um, his concerns would be addressed. Um, but Jefferson was happy to see the Constitution ratified. It's fair to call him a Federalist in the 1780s. But by labeling his faction as the Federalists, Hamilton is implying that those who oppose him are, are not strict interpreters of the Constitution. He's implying that those who oppose him are opponents of the Constitution. He's implying that James Madison, who is initially recognized as the leader of this faction, that James Madison, the father of the Constitution, is an anti-federalist. 
Meanwhile, of course, Madison and Jefferson too engaged in their own branding effort. They decided to call their own faction the Republicans. And in the 18th century, if you were not a Republican, then what must you be? A monarchist. So they were suggesting that Hamilton, as well as John Adams, that Adams and Hamilton and, and other members of their faction were actually monarchists at heart, that they were counter-revolutionaries, that they wanted to, uh, here in America, reinstate a government that mirrored that of Great Britain. Well, Jefferson inadvertently ended up sort of saying that in public. Over in France, Thomas Jefferson's friend, Tom Paine, and Paine was an interesting character. I mean, you know, he's here in America uh, for the American Revolution. He writes Common Sense. Later on, he writes The Crisis. The American Revolution comes to a conclusion. Um, and then he goes to France, right? Because he doesn't want to miss out on the French Revolution. He's almost like one of these guys in a van in the Midwest who chases tornadoes around. <laughs> and, and Paine in France writes a book called The Rights of Man. James Madison obtains a copy of it. He thinks it should be published within the United States. But first, he wants his friend Thomas Jefferson to take a look at it. And he asks Jefferson then to submit the, uh, the copy to an American publisher. So Jefferson reads through The Rights of Man. And he likes it. He thinks that, by and large, it's a pretty good book. And when he transmits the uh, volume by mail to the, uh, the publisher, Jefferson figures, well, he has to have some sort of cover letter right, to explain how he had this book in the first place, who handed it to him, and what the intention um, of, of James Madison was. And, and to take a little bit of the dryness off of the note, as Jefferson said, um, he wrote that, you know, it's, it's, it's about time that finally uh, the standard of common sense can be raised against the heresies that have been propped up amongst us. And, and the heresies, that have cropped up amongst us. When, when, when the publisher saw that line, he thought he knew what Jefferson was referring to. He thought that Jefferson was referring to John Adams's recent work, The Discourses on Davila, critics of which said was a, a treatise that was monarchical in its sentiments. And this publisher, of course, wanting to sell as many copies as possible, without Jefferson's permission, used Jefferson's comments as what we would nowadays call a blurb for the American edition of the rights of man. Right on the title page appeared Jefferson's quote. And when this, this edition circulated throughout the United States, everybody who saw that quotation thought they knew that Thomas Jefferson was calling out John Adams that the Secretary of State was calling out the Vice President of the United States, that he was criticizing him as a monarchist. Well, Jefferson was, was mortified. He understood that this seemed incredibly indelicate, um, incredibly uh, aggressive. He said that John Adams stood open-mouthed against me. It, it, it caused a number of people to pick up their pens and start to attack Thomas Jefferson in the newspapers. Among Jefferson's attackers, of course, were John Adams' son, John Quincy. And then, of course, the indefatigable Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton started to criticize Thomas Jefferson, 
as a French revolutionary, as a radical, as an anarchist, as an atheist. Hamilton um, selected some of the passages out of Jefferson's own book, The Notes on the State of Virginia. And he used these passages to try to make the case against Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson, for example, in trying to argue um, for religious freedom in Virginia. And of course, we know that Jefferson and Madison too would be instrumental in bringing about the Virginia statute for religious freedom. Jefferson in his notes on, on the state of Virginia said, um, it, it does me no injury whether my neighbor believes in no God or 20 gods. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Now, to Jefferson's supporters, this seems like an admirable statement of toleration, that people have the right to do whatever they want to do so long as their rights don't infringe upon the rights of others, as long as it doesn't pick my pocket or break my leg. Yet Hamilton singled that out as Jefferson's disregard for the souls of his countrymen. Elsewhere in the notes in the state of Virginia, Jefferson uh, calculated that if you took all of the water vapor in the atmosphere and liquefied it, sea levels would only rise 10 or 15 feet. And, and thus Jefferson thought that there must be something wrong with the biblical story of Noah's Ark. <laughs> Hamilton was not gonna take that lying down. Jefferson questioning the Bible? So there was, as a result, a very negative view of Thomas Jefferson that took shape, chiefly because of the work, chiefly under the auspices, chiefly as a result of the pen of Alexander Hamilton. And James Madison, who early on in the 1790s had been publicly identified as the leader of the Republican faction, now quickly recedes into the background as Thomas Jefferson becomes known as the leader of what is increasingly known as the Jeffersonian Republican Party. Madison becomes one of Jefferson's chief aides. Jefferson himself is uh, shy about writing for the public prints, but he asks Madison, he says, for, for, for God's sake, dear sir, pick up your pen and cut Hamilton to pieces in the face of the public. And Madison does. And, and, and so you see people rushing to Jefferson's defense. All the things that are said about Thomas Jefferson that are bad. Well, there's a mirror image version produced by Jefferson's allies. Jefferson is not a, a, a radical. Jefferson has principles that are consistent with the heart of the American experiment. Jefferson is not an atheist. Jefferson is a supporter of all religions and, and, and a man who wants to tolerate the practice, the free practice of all religions. Jefferson is not some incendiary Frenchman. He is an upstanding American. Jefferson is not some wild-eyed wild -eyed radical. He is instead uh, a man of sophistication and culture and taste and science. Jefferson if his heart is with anyone, is with the people. And there's this view of Jefferson advanced, of Jefferson as a man of the people, a friend of the people, a, a person who is anything but a monarchist, 
like some people, <laughs> but instead a true Republican and a true um, practitioner of the spirit of 76. Well, you can see in the run-up to the elections of 1796 and 1800, Jefferson's image beginning to unfold. After George Washington serves two terms in office and announces his retirement, it's, it's assumed by just about everyone in America that this contest for the presidency is going to come down to a contest between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And we see a number of depictions of Thomas Jefferson that begin to show various sides of his public image, including this one. This one dates probably to 1793 or 1794. It's from Philadelphia. And it's called, as you can see, a peep into the Anti-Federal Club. Again, Jefferson is being labeled as an Anti-Federalist. And there he is with a gavel in hand, standing upon a table. And, and he is, is you know, uh, imploring this rowdy mob to rally around his principles. Clearly, this is a negative depiction. You could see in the upper right-hand corner, on the right side of the image, an African-American man who the Federalists derided as Citizen Sambo. And, it, and it's worth noting that um, there were, throughout the United States, uh, groups that called themselves Democratic-Republican societies. They saw themselves as the legatees of the Sons of Liberty um, clubs that emerged during the American Revolution. And in Philadelphia, there was indeed an African-American member of the Democratic-Republican Society. Here he's being lampooned as Citizen Sambo. And in the little uh, word bubble above his head, he says, our turn next, N-E-X, apostrophe. So the uh, cartoonist is employing stereotypical uh, African-American dialect to suggest that if Jefferson should get power, it's not just the common white man who will be elevated. All sorts of undesirable things will happen. And when you think about who supports Jefferson, when you think about who cheers Jefferson on, it's not just this motley assemblage. Look at the bottom left side of the image. That is the devil himself. So if you support Thomas Jefferson, you support Satan. There's, there's not much nuance here. There's not much nuance here either. This is a later cartoon. And this time, Jefferson is not being supported by the devil. In this cartoon, in this depiction, Thomas Jefferson is the devil. And Thomas Jefferson is helping Tom Paine pull down the pillar of the federal government that was erected under the administration of George Washington and John Adams. We have a subsequent cartoon in the run-up to the election of 1800. Here, Thomas Jefferson is trying to burn on an altar to Gallic despotism, an altar of French despotism, the Constitution of the United States of America. The flames are being kindled by a number of incendiary tracks, including the Philadelphia Aurora, the chief Jefferson, uh, Jeffersonian Republican newspaper. We see uh, Jefferson dropping from his right hand a letter that he has written to a man named Philip Mizet 
a little backstory about Jefferson and Philip Mazet. Philip Mazet was an Italian individual who bought a farm in Albemarle County, um, adjacent to Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. When Mazet returned back to Italy, he asked Jefferson to look after his farm and uh, you know, communicate with him periodically about the financial tra transactions at the farm, and this Jefferson did. And in 1796, to uh, take a bit of, again, to take a bit of the dryness off the note, Jefferson, you think he would learn his lesson by this point, um, wrote some political gossip to Philip Mazet. He described the situation around him in the, the final days of the Washington administration. America had just ratified, for example, the Jay Treaty, which essentially seemed to repudiate a Revolutionary War alliance with France. All around, there were signs of increasing monarchism in Jefferson's eyes. Jefferson wrote to Mazet, he said, it would give you a fever if you could see men who once were Samson's in the field and Solomon's in the council, but who have now had their heads shorn by the harlot England. Well, if you know your Bible stories, you know that Jefferson wasn't saying nice things. And who was the Samson in the field and the Solomon in the council who Jefferson must have been referring to? Who else could it be other than President Washington himself? So this is a juicy letter. And, and Mazet received it in Italy and he agreed, this is a juicy letter. He translated it from the English. He had it published. It was picked up by a French newspaper, translated into French, and it was published. It was seen by a British newspaper, translated back into English, and it was published. And you could imagine, who in America reads British newspapers? Federalists. <laughs> and so they published it in their papers. And in each new version, the document got a bit more garbled. In each new version, Jefferson's statement seemed a bit more extreme. But this is, is uh, a rock around Jefferson's neck that was hung. And uh, it is here placed as a reminder of, of Jefferson's criticism of the first president of the United States. Well, Jefferson, clearly a bad guy, but the, uh, the implication is, is cemented by the fact that who is swooping in to save the day and prevent Jefferson from burning the Constitution? but the federal eagle guided by the eye of God. <laughs> and then again, at the bottom right-hand side of the cartoon, who again is cheering Thomas Jefferson on? That's right, his good buddy, Satan. <laughs> so there isn't a whole lot of nuance in any of this. <laughs> and the, uh, the contest between Jefferson and John Adams was uh, a heated one. We today think that our politics oftentimes get overheated and shrill. I think it's fair to say, you might disagree, but I think it's fair to say that they were even worse back at the dawn of the 19th century. Because in the 1790s and in the first years of the 1800s, Americans hadn't yet accepted the legitimacy of political parties. Political parties are really an extra constitutional innovation 
Jefferson didn't think of himself as a partisan. He thought of himself as just a defender of the principles of America. Hamilton was a partisan. Adams was a partisan. But Jefferson didn't see himself as a partisan. And for Hamilton and Adams, they felt the same way. They weren't partisans. Jefferson was the partisan. Well, Adams was the partisan who won in the election of 1796. Jefferson came in second, and so he ended up serving as John Adams' vice president. He wasn't an active member of the administration. He mostly sat in the Senate and presided over its proceedings. And four years later, there was a rematch. And once again, Federalists advanced Adams as their candidate. Once again, Republicans advanced Jefferson. And this time, the result was different. John Adams came in third. Thomas Jefferson tied for first with his own running mate, Aaron Burr. And after several ballots in the Federalist-dominated 1798 elected House of Representatives that had still not been replaced by the incoming House, finally, Jefferson was named the president. It's kind of an interesting side story, but it's worth telling. Um, you know, the Federalists in the, in the Congress, they thought, look, for 10 years, we've been saying horrible things about Thomas Jefferson. I mean, the guy hangs out with the devil all the time, right? He's the last person we should want to be the president of the United States. Anyone has to be better than Thomas Jefferson. And we don't know much about this Aaron Burr guy. Maybe he's not so bad. And maybe if we support him, he'll be our guy. Maybe he'll work with us. Maybe we'll have influence over him. And ironically, I mean, they don't make movies any better than this. Ironically, who is the man who thought that this Federalist plan was a disaster? Who was the man who engaged in a letter-writing campaign to urge Federalists to support Thomas Jefferson and not to support Aaron Burr? The man was none other than Alexander Hamilton himself. Hamilton, for example, wrote to James Baird, the lone congressman from Delaware, and urged him not to vote for Burr. He said, if the Federalists elect Burr, they will be responsible for all the things that Burr will do. And we cannot predict or control what Burr does. But if we acquiesce to the election of Jefferson, the Federalists will remain without stain. In addition, Hamilton said, while Jefferson has principles with which we disagree, Aaron Burr has no principles whatsoever. <laughs> and as a result, Jefferson became the president. And as president, and this is really the, one of the second things that I, that I learned about, about Jefferson. I mean, the first is that no one really knew that he was the author of the Declaration of Independence until the 1790s, until especially the election of 1796. With all these Federalists saying that Thomas Jefferson is somehow anti-American, what better response for the Republicans to make. You say he's anti-American? Excuse us, but Thomas Jefferson is the author of the declaration that defined America. Thomas Jefferson is author of America's birth certificate. Thomas Jefferson is author of America's statement of purpose. How could anyone be more American than Thomas Jefferson? So increasingly, Jefferson is becoming known and connected with the declaration. 
And this, the second thing that I discovered was that Jefferson really was happy to see this. Jefferson very much cared about his public image. He was very much concerned what others were saying about him. We know this for a number of different reasons, including the fact that Thomas Jefferson kept a number of scrapbooks of newspaper clippings about him. I mentioned that I started working on a project with Christine before we started dating. Well, this was the project. Um, I, I found in the Special Collections Library at the University of Virginia four volumes of scrapbooks that had been attributed to Thomas Jefferson's granddaughters. But I started to look at them, and it was really kind of striking. I mean, first of all, the newspaper clippings are pasted down onto envelopes that have been unfolded and used as scrap papers. The envelopes are addressed to Thomas Jefferson at Monticello and Thomas Jefferson in Washington, D.C. And they're addressed also to James Madison and Albert Gallatin, Jefferson's Secretary of State and Secretary of Treasury. And of course, Jefferson had access to their correspondence. There are articles that have notations that appear to be in the handwriting of Thomas Jefferson. The articles are about Thomas Jefferson, by and large. There, there are some um, that perhaps had an emotional uh, relevance for Thomas Jefferson. In, in one uh, volume, we have a number of poems. And while the poems don't necessarily have political connotations, you could connect them to Thomas Jefferson's life. There's one called Scenes of My Youth, and it's essentially about um, two young men, including one who dies young. And on the page on which is pasted Scenes of My Youth appears this oak leaf. And we know that, according to Jefferson, when he was a young boy living down at Shadwell, he and his best friend would climb the mountain that would someday become Monticello, and they would sit under this oak tree. And that one day they made a promise that whoever should survive would, would bury the first to die under the shade of this tree. And that was the origin of the Monticello Cemetery. In other scrapbooks, we see depictions of Fourth of July celebrations, toasts made in honor of Thomas Jefferson, poems and songs in honor of Thomas Jefferson. There are a few critical anti-Jefferson pieces, almost to provide some sort of context. But by and large, the, the preference is for positive portrayals of Thomas Jefferson. And when you think about it, right, in, in, in a, a, a time before we had a Gallup survey, what better way to keep track of the pulse of public opinion? And so Thomas Jefferson um, was very much concerned with how people regarded him. We, uh, we also can see um, that Thomas Jefferson, throughout his presidency, is going, like all presidents, to endure both low points and experience the exhilaration of high points. High points like the purchase of Louisiana, which saw the doubling of the nation's size. High points like paying down one-third of the national debt. But we also see low points. We see Jefferson's um, agonizing efforts to avoid foreign war, his, his work through the controversial embargo to keep American commerce out of danger. We see Thomas Jefferson retiring from office and commemorating 
the pleasure of retirement through the poems that he pastes into his scrapbooks. One of Jefferson's good friends was uh, the wife of the editor of the Jeffersonian Republican newspaper, The National Intelligencer, a woman named Margaret Baird Smith. And according to uh, her memoirs, um, at the inauguration of James Madison, at the reception that occurred immediately afterwards, she saw Thomas Jefferson. He was standing there sort of with a smile on his face. And she said, you look like a man much relieved. And he said, yes, yes, ma'am, I am. And I am much happier than my friend. Right? In other words, now it's, now it's James Madison's problem. And I get to move on. I get to go back home. I get to go back to my farm and my family and my books and the pleasures of retirement. And when we think about Jefferson's retirement, when we think about the projects of his retirement, we think, of course, about Jefferson's founding of the University of Virginia, a school where he hoped to put a stamp upon the leaders of successive generations, a school that he designed, a school where he selected books for the library, a school where he hired the original factor, uh, sorry, faculty, a school where he hoped forever and ever he could be quoted freely. <laughs> and, and yet, I think that in addition to the University of Virginia, in addition to Jefferson's efforts to use the University of Virginia to try to cement his reputation and secure his legacy, we could see him engaged in other sorts of projects. Some of you might not know that before Jefferson established the University of Virginia, he was the founder of another important school, including um, you know, the school that uh, would commission Thomas Sully to paint this full-length portrait. The school I'm referring to is not my alma mater, it's my employer, it's the United States Military Academy which Jefferson called for and established in 1802. In recognition of his status as the military academy's founder, the cadets and the faculty of the academy hired Thomas Sully to paint this portrait of Thomas Jefferson that would be displayed at West Point. And when you look at this portrait, you could see how Jefferson and Sully are collaborating to create an image of Thomas Jefferson that will resonate within the walls of West Point as well as beyond them. Jefferson is wearing um, a coat that was left to him by the famous Polish patriot, General Thaddeus Kosciuszko. Kosciuszko, of course, helped to design the fortifications at West Point before it became the United States Military Academy. Jefferson, of course, is standing next to a column. And for the longest time, people couldn't figure out, where was this column? What was this column? Doesn't resemble a column at Monticello. Doesn't resemble any columns at the University of Virginia. Doesn't resemble a column at the White House. A, a, a good friend of mine and a great scholar named Gay Wilson made what I think is a fantastic discovery. This column is a perfect match for the columns that appear in the old House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., in what is now Statuary Hall. Jefferson, mind you, of course, had been the president, and he had been the vice president, so he presided over the Senate. He had never served in the House of Representatives, but that he would be pictured standing alongside a column in the House of Representatives, the People's House, solidifies his reputation as a man of the people. A final project in which Jefferson engaged during his retirement, I think also aimed 
to secure his reputation. It was to patch things up with John Adams. Jefferson and Adams had been estranged for many years. They barely spoke when Jefferson was vice president. And when Jefferson was elected president, John Adams left town in the early hours of the morning of Jefferson's inauguration. He wasn't even present to see Jefferson take the oath. It was only through the efforts of their mutual friend, Benjamin Rush, that the two men, after Jefferson's retirement, began to patch things up. And they wrote a fantastic uh, number of letters. And they talked about all the things that you're not supposed to talk about. They spoke about, they wrote about uh, religion. They wrote about politics. They wrote about history. They wrote about philosophy. They wrote about the future. And it's clear that the audience for their letters, I think, is not just each other. If you visited Monticello, if you've taken a tour of the house, if you've gone into what Jefferson called his sanctum sanctorum, his office suite, you perhaps remember his polygraph machine. This, this letter writing machine that sits upon his desk, with one hand Jefferson holds a pen and that pen is connected through a series of levees and pullers with another pen that, that traces out an exact copy of whatever letter Jefferson happens to be writing. So he could not only send off a copy in the mail, but retain a copy for his own records. It's pretty clear that Thomas Jefferson, from a fairly early age, understands that he is a figure on the stage of history. And, and that he is writing not only for himself, not only for his recipients, but he is writing for posterity. Well, Jefferson and Adams lived long lives. By the spring of 1826, John Adams was 90. Thomas Jefferson, in April of that year, turned 83. By May, Jefferson quipped that he felt as if he had one foot in the grave and the other uplifted to follow. With, within a few weeks of that prophetic comment, Thomas Jefferson was on his deathbed. At Jefferson's bedside at the end of June, 1826, were three men. There was his grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph. There was his grandson-in-law, a West Point dropout named Nicholas P. Trist. And there was his personal physician, a University of Virginia medicine professor named Dr. Robley Dunglison. Jefferson expressed to these men and, men and to others his final wish, his final desire. He wanted to live to see the 4th of July, the 50th anniversary of independence. And as the days passed, and as Jefferson's life waned, he began to fall in and out of consciousness. On July 1st, his eyes fluttered open and he asked the men at his bedside, is it the 4th? And of course they had to disappoint him and shake their heads no. The next day, Jefferson again opened his eyes. This time with a weaker voice, he asked, is it the 4th? And again, they had to disappoint him. The hours passed, his pulse slowed, his life waned. On the night of July 3rd, 1776, around 11 p.m., Jefferson's eyes barely opened. He turned to Nicholas P. Trist and he whispered, is it the fourth? And, and thinking that the old man could go at any moment, Nicholas Trist, who clearly did not spend enough time at West Point to internalize the honor code, 
lied to Thomas Jefferson and, and nodded his head. Yes, it is the 4th of July. Now, a lot of biographers um, say that those were Jefferson's last words, is it the 4th? But if you go to special collections and archives at the University of Virginia Library, you will see the account of Dr. Dunglison. And according to Dr. Dunglison's account, Dunglison then offers to Jefferson a dose of what is believed to be life-sustaining medication. And Jefferson, having been assured that it is already the 4th of July, turns to Dunglison and says, no doctor, nothing more. Now this would be a terrible story. If right then, right there, on July 3rd, 1826, <laughs> Jefferson died. But the good news, of course, is that he did not. He lived. He lived until noon the next day. He lived to die 50 years to the hour after the Continental Congress's ratification of the Declaration of Independence. An amazing, an amazing moment in history. Made all the more amazing by the fact that unbeknownst to anyone in Virginia, hundreds of miles to the north in Quincy, Massachusetts, John Adams was on his deathbed. That he died around 5 p.m. when the declaration was first publicly proclaimed. And that his last words, not knowing what had happened down in Virginia, his last words were, Thomas Jefferson survives. Now, I'd like to think that at that very moment, Thomas Jefferson was being lifted skyward on the wings of angels, laughing his bottom off at having once again proven John Adams wrong. <laughs> but, but perhaps in another way, metaphorically, John Adams was right. Maybe Jefferson did survive. Maybe the entire revolutionary generation survived. Maybe the principles of the American Revolution were bound to survive. Certainly, Jefferson hoped so. Certainly, he hoped that his reputation would survive. And he still had one final contribution to it to make. After his death among his papers, people found instructions for his tombstone and his epitaph. And when you think about it, when you think about all the things that Jefferson in his life had done, what he chooses to list is somewhat curious. Think about all the offices he held. He was a member of the House of Burgesses. He was a member of the Continental Congress. He had been our minister to France. He was our first secretary of state, our second vice president, our third president. None of that is listed. Instead, Jefferson says that he wants these words carved upon the stone and not a word more. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. And when you think about it, when you really think about it, what is the statement that Thomas Jefferson is trying to make here. In my opinion, it's this. What Thomas Jefferson wanted us to know is that his greatness does not come from the powers that men had given to him. What makes Jefferson great are the powers that he restored to mankind. Thank you very much.
So we have time for a few questions. Is that yes, Professor? An engaging, uh, informative talk about a complex character. Uh, you spoke frequently of his writings and his collection, part of which is upstairs. What in one of your cartoons showed him with a gavel, with a motley crew around him? What can you tell us about Jefferson, an accomplished politician, as a public speaker? Oh, he was terrible. He, he was terrible, and I, I, think he, I think he was well aware of, of, of that. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of, when we think about how political culture was different then than it is now, fortunately for Thomas Jefferson, politicians, first of all, they hated that term, um, statesmen, right? Uh, there weren't many occasions for them to address crowds. Uh, if you were standing for office, you would never run for office. If people had put forth your name, um, you would sort of sit back. Um, and, and let others do or say what they would. You would certainly not make speeches. You would certainly not make promises. To say, if you vote for me, I'll do this for you was considered the height of corruption, as they, as, as, they all was. Um, really, really, the first time Jefferson could express himself directly to the American people was his inaugural address. And of course, he delivered that um, in, in what people who were present described as hushed tones. They said that his, his voice barely carried beyond the first couple of rows of the people assembled, um, you know, in, in the, the House of Representatives chamber. Um, now, Jefferson understood this, though, and uh, he provided uh, Samuel Harrison Smith, the editor of the National Intelligencer, with the text of his speech. So by the time the speech was over, there were already printed copies, and it already appeared um, you know, in, the, in the, the National Intelligencer newspaper. So Jefferson was aware of his uh, shortcomings as a public speaker, but he also had figured out ways to overcome them. Hi, I'm curious about um, the fact that Jefferson served in Washington's first cabinet, and Washington uh, spoke against political parties, yet Jefferson is recognized as uh, a leading member of, of the first uh, party division in our country. Can you speak a little bit about Jefferson's relationship with Washington along those lines? Sure. I mean, I think the partisanship clearly put a strain upon their relationship. Um, Jefferson uh, thought that that Washington was so. It, let me just make this point clear uh, for starters. Washington was not a Federalist. Washington was not a Republican. Washington was, as a point of principle, a president above party. Washington, as you pointed out, disdained the notion of partisanship. Washington thought that partisanship, well, it was just to him unfathomable. What, it didn't make sense. We might agree um, with with some of our neighbors about. Uh, foreign policy, but we might disagree with some of those same people about taxes, and we might disagree with some, but, but agree with others about parks or what have you, right? I mean, why would we always be agreeing with the same people and disagreeing with the same people? To Washington, that just didn't make any sense. And so he was really uh, horrified by the emergence of partisanship, and he thought that it possessed a real potential to lead to the disunion of the United States. You know, still a fragile and new experiment. Yet Hamilton thought that the fate of, the, of America hung in the balance. Jefferson thought that the future of America hung in the balance and that the other side was moving America off course in a dangerous direction. And both Hamilton and, both Je and Jefferson, you know, worked hard to try to win over George Washington, who sometimes supported Jefferson, 
who more, more than sometimes supported Hamilton. And uh, by the end of Washington's presidency, Jefferson, I think, had become increasingly a persona non grata, um, which explains why Martha Jefferson described Jefferson as, uh, why Martha Washington described Jefferson as one of the most detestable of mankind. Um, Jefferson had been sponsoring a new partisan press that was criticizing the Washington administration, that was criticizing Washington himself. So, so even these old allies, these compatriots, these Virginians, these partners in the American Revolution and the, and the project of independence, um, even their relationship was put under pretty severe strain. How can you explain how frugal Jefferson was with the people's money, but such a spendthrift with his own? It's a great question. <laughs> if only all of our presidents could be like that. <laughs> you know, Jefferson, uh, so on the public side of things, Jefferson thought that boy, our government was doing too much. In fact, I referred to his first inaugural address. The line that everybody seems to want to remember is, we are all Federalists, we're all Republicans. That's a great line. But what I think is maybe most, the most signature line is Jefferson's um, comment. He, he asked the people in the audience, he says, you know, we have so many advantages. We have a great population. We have amazing and abundant resources. What remains to close the circle of our felicities? One thing more, a wise and frugal government, which shall restrain men from injuring one another, but shall leave them otherwise alone in their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This is the sum of good government. So what Jefferson is saying, saying essentially is that the government should really be kind of minimalist. The government should, should protect people's rights um, but for the most part, the national government could otherwise leave them alone. And so when Jefferson became president, he was the only president who in his inaugural address really promised to do less than his predecessors. And he immediately got to the work of cutting the government. He laid off a number of tax collectors, a, a, a feat made possible by the fact that he um, repealed all internal taxes, including the, the dreaded whiskey excise tax that led to the Whiskey Rebellion in the 1790s. Um, but this belt tightening, and, and as well as a booming economy, um, made it possible for Jefferson to pay down one-third of the national debt, even though he had purchased Louisiana for $15 million. So that's a, a, a significant accomplishment. Um, however, on the personal side of things, Thomas Jefferson was uh, a farmer. And farmers oftentimes found that their fortunes were connected to factors beyond their control. And, and things got worse for Thomas Jefferson when his father-in-law passed away because Jefferson inherited from his father-in-law not only land and slaves, but also debts. And in Virginia at the time, there was a legal doctrine known as entail, which meant that if you inherited land and it had been entailed, you couldn't subdivide that land. You couldn't sell off that land. You had to retain possession of that land. And so Jefferson could never fully discharge those debts, which, which continued to mount. Of course, Jefferson loved to spend money. I would, I, wouldn't it be great if we could all go back in time and go to dinner at Monticello? <laughs> I don't think he ever received quite so many people at his doorstep, but there are accounts of him entertaining 50 people on a daily basis. All of that food, all of that wine, and then, of course, all of those books. The man had the largest library in the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> 
So, I mean, he does have a, a uh, you know, expensive lifestyle. And when he's retired, sort of the, the coup de grace is, is that his son-in-law defaults upon a debt and Jefferson is left holding the bag. And by the end of, the life, of his life, he could barely, um, barely pay the interest on his debts. And he basically dies bankrupt. So it's a very sad story. Was the uh, relationship between uh, Jefferson and Sally Hemming well known at that time? Yeah, it's, well, I'm, I, I, I always expect that someone's going to ask that question. So I'm, I'm prepared. Uh, yes. Yes, it was. Um, here's the story uh, that broke the news on the, the page of the Richmond Recorder, a Federalist newspaper, um, on the morning of September 1st, 1802. The author was James Thompson Callender, um, a man who had been a writer for the Jeffersonian Republicans, who in the 1790s had made a living saying terrible things about George Washington and John Adams, um, a man who had been jailed under the Adams administration's um, 1798 Sedition Act, a man who uh, was, was freed by Thomas Jefferson, and Jefferson um, gave him a grant of, of, of money to, to pay off his bills, but he wanted more. He wanted a job as postmaster of Richmond, and that was something that Jefferson was not willing to give. So uh, Callender put forth this story, the story that Thomas Jefferson, um, after the death of his wife, um, started a relationship and had several children with a slave at Monticello named Sally Hemings. He didn't use the last name. He just called her Sally. Um, but there was a slave at Monticello named Sally Hemings. And the story, um, like all of Calendar's stories, uh, doesn't quite hit the mark. There are details of what Calendar says, right, that are not true. But, but I will tell you that, um, in, in my estimation, the story is probably essentially true. And I say probably. It's not a 100% slam dunk. Um, but I think the preponderance of evidence um, says that, in fact, Jefferson did probably have a longstanding relationship with Sally Hemings. And, and I want to encourage you to think about what it might have been like um, and to realize that what we're doing here is really just speculating. Um, you know, people in the, in the time tried to, you know, laugh at Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. There was a cartoon that appeared in 1804 called A Philosophic Cock. Um, and, you know, here's Thomas Jefferson the rooster and Sally Hemings his hen. And the word cock in, in uh, the early 19th century um, meant rooster. Um, and it was also a symbol of revolutionary France. And there was also the vulgar meeting. And, uh, and you know, Thomas Jefferson uh, was sort of exposed to a lot of ridicule. Um, people essentially said that he demeaned himself, that he lowered himself by having a relationship with a woman of African descent. I don't know that that's true. And, and I would say this. Um, you know, we know that Jefferson was present at Monticello whenever Sally Hemings became pregnant. And she became pregnant six times over the course of several years. So it seems like it was a long-term relationship, all of it occurring after the death of Jefferson's wife. We know that Sally Hemings was Jefferson's late wife's half-sister. All right, according to family tradition, Sally Hemings was the daughter of Thomas Jefferson's father-in-law. So Sally Hemings, whose mother was supposedly the daughter of an English ship captain. So Sally Hemings is one quarter black, three quarters white, Jefferson's late wife's half-sister. She probably very much re resembles Thomas Jefferson's late wife, a woman who on her deathbed, he promised he would never, he would never remarry, he told her. 
And she asked him not to remarry, it seems, because her father remarried after the death of her mother, and she felt she was treated like a second-class citizen in her own home when her stepmother's um, daughters uh, joined the family. So this occurs over time, and Sally, she's, you know, a pretty, for 18th century, 19th century Virginia women, how many had been to France? How many had lived in Paris? How many were bilingual? How many women experienced life at the lofty heights of Monticello? I think it's an error for us to sort of assume that Sally Hemings is not, in relative terms, a pretty sophisticated individual. We have the fact that Sally Hemings told her children that Jefferson was their father. We have the fact that all of the children of Sally Hemings were freed when they became adults. We have the fact that there were friends of Thomas Jefferson who, in private letters, referenced his relationship. So it's not a slam dunk, it's not a 100%, but I think the case is pretty compelling that Jefferson and Sally Hemings did in fact have a relationship. And the thing for me that, that really sealed the deal was the discovery of this photograph. <laughs> Thank you all very much.